The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode number 87 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm your host, George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own. I'm not my present or past employers. I will never disclose any sense of intelligence that I've been privileged to or resort to my current employment. And I will never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. So before I get started, I remind our listeners, you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So we had a great show last week with Kate Fizzini. And see, I, you know, I love having Kate on the show. I love having her on the show because she is always on the cutting edge of the cybersecurity news cycle because that's what she does for a living. And she talks to some of the biggest players in the industry on a regular basis. And so that gives her a breadth of knowledge on a variety of different topics in the cybersecurity space, no matter what vertical you're talking about. She always has something very intelligent to say. And so her knowledge about these issues is very broad. And, uh, and that's why I like having her on. And that's why we're going to have her on again tonight uh, in just a little bit. So we're going to do back-to-back shows with Kate Fazzini. So we covered a lot last week. We covered the crazy situation down in Baltimore where the city was hit with a ransomware attack. And the city officials are blaming the NSA for their troubles. So we sort of unpacked that for you, which is kind of interesting what's going on down there, the sparring uh, between, you know, uh, federal, local, and, and, and state organizations, um, and the confusion that still exists when it comes to cybersecurity uh, between different levels of government. And we spoke about the cybersecurity implications from the Mueller report, which no one else seems to be talking about, because, of course, it gets buried in all of the political ramifications of the investigation that took place. And and it also gets buried in the in the um, the back and forth that goes on, the, the endless back and forth that seems to go on on cable news between the, the Republicans and the Democrats. But no one's really talking about the cybersecurity issues of that report that were uh, basically uh, uncovered. So we went over that, which was which was great. And uh, look, we talked about the the role of social media and our national security. We talked about government uh, security elections. Uh, or election security, I should say, uh, in, in the upcoming election and what that looks like. We unpacked what's going on with Huawei, which is going to be a continued topic on this show, because I think it's really important for us to talk about. I mean, we, we, we looked at the whole, I guess, the whole technology, 5G technology in general, right, and how, that's, how that seems to be um, playing out across the world. And, of course, we spoke about her new book, Kingdom of Lies, which has some very cool stuff in it. And it's based on Kate's extensive experience in the industry. So all this and much, much more with CNBC cybersecurity reporter Kate Fazzini on last week's episode. That's episode number 86 
of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you the link to this episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all the previous Task Force 7 Radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new TF7 Radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage, and you can find all of TF7 Radio episodes right at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a very impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the industry, including Kate. She's on there a few times. And of course, we have our news selection as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news and, and news on Task Force 7 Radio that's coming out. And then you can even write comments on the different articles and interface with a lot of the other TF7 radio listeners, which is a lot of fun, right? So we're on at least 11 different playback mediums right now. We made it easier for you to find them all. You just hit the subscribe button at the top of the top right of the homepage, and uh, you'll see your entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7. 365, anytime, anywhere around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. So we got another great show for you this week. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, we're going to have back-to-back episodes with my friend and CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. It's awesome to have the cybersecurity reporter for one of the biggest networks in the world on the show, right? Isn't that cool? That's very cool. She attracts a huge crowd. Uh, and we'd love to have her on. So very quickly, if you haven't heard Kate on the show yet, before joining, joining CNBC, Kate was a cybersecurity reporter for the Wall Street Journal. And prior to that, she worked in the cybersecurity field as a practitioner in roles at the Promontory Financial Group, as well as with J.P. Morgan Chasing Company, where we work together over at JPMC headquarters on Park Avenue. So Kate holds a master's degree in cybersecurity strategy from the George Washington University, and she serves as an adjunct professor in the Applied Intelligence Program at Georgetown, as well as the cybersecurity program at the University of Maryland. And as I mentioned last week, she just came out with her new book, Kingdom of Lies, Unnerving Adventures in the World of Cybercrime. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my pleasure once again to welcome Kate Fizzini to the show. Kate, welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio. Thanks for having me, George. Hey, it's good to have you back again. So I want to kick this off by talking about what you think the single biggest problem in corporate cybersecurity is right now? Because this is a big topic. Everyone's talking about the issues that we're having across the industry. What's your take? I, I think there are a lot of problems, but um, I, I'm always looking at things from my own personal experience. So I think there's a major problem that still exists with communication. Um, I think that one of the problems that I see on a really regular basis um, is you know, these companies, they have people going out to the big events, they have cybersecurity tools that they're using, but when you see what actually causes some of these big incidents, uh, it, it still boils down to an issue of somebody higher up not getting uh, the urgency of patching a certain problem to the right person. And that's something that I still am sort of waiting for a big solution uh, to. Isn't this sort of a process-oriented uh, issue? Isn't this like a process thing? I mean, when you talk about, especially about patching and operations, and the more operational you talk about something, um, the, the, more, the bigger, the, the more important the process really is because people are going out there. To your point, maybe they're buying technologies. They think they're going to have some push-button push solution, um, and that's not really the case, right? 
I, I absolutely think that's true. And I think that when it comes, uh, people don't like to talk about process because it can be really boring, right? Right, right. You think of the role of a, like a process engineer in, in a cybersecurity organization. It's not exactly uh, the most flashy kind of job, but it is really one of the most important jobs, um, especially when it comes to knowing for what and when you raise up something that's happening to somebody of a higher level or somebody within another organization who needs to know about it. So there are certain incidents that are going to trigger something that is, you know, perhaps a violation of GDPR. It's perhaps a privacy violation. Um, that would be very different than something that might trigger, say, um, you know, New Jersey's notification law. So within a, a company, there are always different people who need to be stakeholders at different times. And that can get really tricky if you don't have it down on paper or written somewhere or at least codified in some way. Yeah, I think so. And I think if you go into some of these cybersecurity organizations and you ask them for their process maps and their operations, they don't have any. You know, they don't even have any. I think, you know, I mean, and things get confusing, right? It gets confusing, but who does what? And, who, and when you talk about someone's role and what their responsibility is and what their skill set is and what they really think they're supposed to be doing, I think, if, you know, you, you talk to a couple people that do the same job and you get like three different answers, right? Yeah. I mean, I think the best example of this is it, I know everybody always references the Equifax breach, but I think that when you get down to the nuts and bolts of what happened. It is just so important to remember that what really happened was somebody blasted out an email um, that, that said you need to, this is to kind of the, the leads of each of the different business units. You have to update this uh, patch for Apache struts. And one, one of those organizations didn't do it. And it just shows how, you know, sending out the blast email reminder and calling it a day isn't really the way to do things because this is like one of the uh, biggest security inc incidents of the decade. Um, and anybody who's ever worked in an organization has been on the receiving end of that kind of uh, hierarchy where it's just an email blast, don't forget to update, and, you know, <laughs> three months from now we'll have a meeting where we'll go mm -hmm. over a PowerPoint showing how many updates actually occurred, um, that, that really killed them. And it's, it's something that I think happens every day at most companies. And I think, you know, the, it depends on the background of the CISO and some of the other people in charge of the organization. But in my experience, if they're more technically oriented, if they're engineers, right, they're, they're very, they're, they're technologists, they're going to be res resistant to uh, putting in a process improvement team inside the cybersecurity space. Um, you know, some of the, the teams I, I've, I've recently worked for, they've done that and, and kudos to them because they've actually, you know, started a, a new team inside the cybersecurity team, work with the, the larger, you know, process improvement folks and the control folks in the enterprise. And I think that's a great idea. I think that's a, that's a wonderful idea. And if, uh, if uh, cybersecurity teams do that more often, I think we could really start to cut down little by little on some of these mistakes that are being made. What about the cybersecurity in the government? What, 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 is it any different there? I, I think that, I think it's very different. Um, I think, uh, I mean, I think there's still communications issues, but I think they are on such a much larger scale. So you're not 
you're not now talking about just business units, but huge organizations, branches of the military that, that really need to talk to each other and do a little bit better job of, of speaking together um, when, when something is happening. Uh, you know, we saw in the elections what happens when there is this breakdown, um, whether it's with the DNC, um, you know, you've got the FBI, DHS willing to help with uh, some hacking going on in in their campaign. You have CrowdStrike coming in to help clean up the mess afterwards. And, you know, if you go and, and you see uh, the after effects of that, you'll, you'll notice that even with all of these different players um, supposedly helping them, those there were vulnerabilities that stayed and those attacks continued even after they knew that they were happening. So you have a bunch of different groups. Some of them with different motivations and different politics, um, just unable to talk to one another and get things done. I don't think that's improved a lot. Now, this is a really good point because I think, you know, when we, even when we talk about patching, it might be the security folks that are saying, hey, we, you know, here's the newest uh, um, vulnerability that's out there that we need to patch. And, and, uh, and, but when they do that, they pass it on to an operations team. It's not necessarily even in the cyber uh, security group, right? To actually patch these networks. Um, and so it's not even the same team to your point, but all these teams have to be working together for this to, to, this to work. And that's why these fusion models that are being implemented across mm -hmm. the industry, I think are extremely important to try to correct this problem, but it, it's no, we're nowhere near where we should be, right? It's not even. Whether I, it's government I think. Or, um, I think one of the, so I've never worked in, in government, and one of the things that was really eye opening to me um, when when we worked together at J.P. Morgan Chase, and we had some some guys who came in from the government, um, and they had us write uh, con ops for our respective uh, departments. And if you don't know what a con op, or I might not even saying it right, but a concept of operations, yeah, which right. is this very long. Uh, wordy document that, uh, you know, it was, it was just pages and pages. And I, it was just something that I had never encountered before. Um, and I, I can't imagine working in a government agency and having that be, you know, just volumes and volumes of this description of your operations. Um, it's really time consuming. And I just wonder how, uh, you know, how much that actually helps things. Have you, have you found that that, that helps? Um, or is that just, just too much paperwork? I found, you know, specifically when I was at JP, I did write the comps for the SOC in the, um, in the hunting teams and, um, and referring back to, and that's when those guys showed up, uh, they had to start writing that stuff out. I think for the hunting, uh, operation, it was helpful. It was helpful. Mm -hmm. It was helpful because even today when I go, I, I don't think everybody, everybody calls it hunting, but when you go ask them what they actually do on their hunting team, it's something very different than the guys that, over at the next financial institution doing or the next fortune 500 company you're doing um everyone sort of does it differently and i think you know let's put it this way the delta between how they do hunting in these different companies is much greater than how people run their socks oh really and, yeah yeah it's definitely different and i don't think it's there's a lot of value in some of the the way they go about it so i think in one way to sit down and actually describe what you're going to do and how you're going to do it helps to sort you to sort of see the value of of the operation itself and, and, and also to eliminate redundancy, right? Cause I think, you know, a lot of these hunting teams are just using tools and going out there and, and, and being redundant and what other, what other cybersecurity teams are doing as well. 
Um, they might try to, you know, identify it as uh, something at a higher level um, or something like that, but it really isn't. I think when I think about hunting, I think about guys with real skill sets in terms of operating systems to be able to go in there and manually see anomalies in the operating system to see traces or identify the adversary in your network and do things that tools can't do and, and automate. And so I, I see that as a very special skill set that uh, I guess a lot, you know, more, more so the government employees come, come, you know, people coming out of the government have those skills hmm. uh, more so than, than corporate folks. So I think in some respects it could help, but you know, it has to be done right. Like anything else, if you don't do it right, then it's not, it's, it's useless. Right. Yeah, uh, it's uh, one thing that I, I'm I'm curious about uh, asking you actually is um, oh, here we go. The, I know <laughs> I know I can't help it. This is, I'm not used to being asked the questions. I've said that before. Uh, but for the hunt teams, um, what do you think is is the kind of you, uh, case study of a, an organization that should have an internal hunt team versus one that should be outsourcing it? Because there are so many really I think strong players in the third party provider market for hunt services or red teaming yeah so in my opinion you know the the perfect scenario would be if you have a hunt team that went in and identified uh the 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 presence of the adversary uh that your tool set did not right and that would be the, the you know like uh, for instance we, we would prioritize things you gotta remember these guys are could be playing on live systems so this is where the conversation comes in this is where everybody gets upset no one wants a bunch of guys poking around their production systems and mistakes have been made, right? Their mistakes have been made and systems have been brought down and, you know, heads have rolled, right? And so th this, is, this has happened in other organizations. So you have to be very, very meticulous. You have to have a tremendous amount of trust in the team that you're building around it and you really have to start um, from a risk, you know, everything has to be risk prioritized and you got to start from something that's, you know, if, if they break this, it's not going to be the end of the world. If you're just building your team, um, I know like we used to take a look at, you know, possibly the security guards on the midnight shift, you know, to start out just to see what, what, if we saw anything, because a lot of times you have a bunch of employees that might be surfing the internet and, you know, we all know that, uh, you know, when you surf bad sites on the internet, bad things can happen to your computer. Mm -hmm. And so uh, we had guys going in and looking for, looking for stuff on the, those operating systems just to sort of start out. Like we know that this isn't the, the, the most important thing the organization has going on by far, but if they did something wrong, there would be very limited damage to that, you know, the, any kind of functionality or especially any kind of revenue uh, generating group, anything like that. Mm -hmm. So you start off with something, so then you build up and you build up and you build up and, um, and, and you just, you know, you get confidence in your team, you get confidence in, in what you're doing, you get confidence in your process and your operations. But that would be the ideal business case, right? To find some type of propagation throughout the network, to find something on an operating system that all your automation and your RPA and all your tools didn't find. I don't know if that makes sense to you. But. It does, totally makes sense. Interesting. Yeah. All right. That's the way I see you, it. <laughs> you're in charge. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the way I see it. Look, what, you know, look, you were just talking about that you, you worked at all these different places. You have all this unique experience. That's why I love to have you on because you have such a wide breadth of knowledge across a variety of different disciplines in cybersecurity. And you talk to so many people, and I mentioned it in, in earlier in the, in the episode, you talk to everyone out there and you're sort of on the cutting edge of, of everything that's going on in cyber. But why did, you, why did you become a reporter? So you, you went through all these great, you know, from uh, finance and you had, you worked for like Promontary, you did all this, um, you know, practitioners type work. And, and now you're, now you're a reporter doing great things with CNBC. Well, um, well, thank you. And, and CNBC has been, been great for me as well. Um, I can honestly say uh, that I didn't do it for the money. 
Um, so <laughs> that's, that's definitely number one. Uh, but uh, I, you know, one of the things that I experienced and it just sort of became really acute after a couple of years was, um, and it did start, I think, when I worked in the, in the SOG, um, was just experiencing the, the things that were happening um, on the inside and then consuming the news about it and just, you know, being, having it be very clear that uh, a lot of the information was, was wrong, uh, but more importantly, that, that the coverage was, was so often focused on things that just had very little impact on people's lives or on business. Um, and I just thought there was too little insight into why everything, like all of this was happening. It was just like breach. 43 million people, 85 million people. Uh, and that's, that, that was sort of the, the depth of it. Um, and, you know, as I, as I really thought about what is the, the, the thing going on in cybersecurity that really hurts business, um, that was not the thing that was being reported. And also the stuff that really hurts consumers, you know, things like wire fraud, that you will lose hundreds of thousands of dollars um, if you're a small business owner or you're selling a home to this type of fraud that involves phishing, it's very simple, but that is what really cuts deep to actual people. Um, losing, you know, your social security number even, or certainly losing your credit card number isn't something that, that has a really deep cut for most people. And so I wanted to get to those stories that, that were really affecting actual human beings. And um, when I, Whenever I have people who are readers who call and they're very upset because they were the victims of something, it is always something that involves them losing a lot of money that they can't get back, um, that involves, you know, a stolen identity that is stolen for years and they can't, they can't untangle themselves from it. And those are the kinds of stories that I, I want to be able to tell. So I think this is very, very helpful to our entire industry. And I think more people, we need more people like you. Um, in, in, in the, um, as reporters and in the media industry, because I think that when, you know, when I watch TV and I, I'm watching cable news on some stations and someone will come on and I'll say something, you're right. They just hit the broad strokes. So here's the numbers, you know, here's how many people got breached. Here's how much money. Here's the next meeting. Here might want to happen. And, you know, and sometimes you might hear a follow up on how you can protect yourself or, you know, protect your credit or something like that. There's not a lot of talk about root cause analysis and education. There's no impact. Uh, on the market, uh, and I think you—that's what you bring to the table, and it's awesome. And I think we just need more people like like yourself. It's a great decision, um, uh, you know. You. you know to go there. I think it's awesome. But what about cybersecurity education? What about you know um, the, the talent crisis and how we educate the marketplace and everything that's going on with that? So um, I, I teach uh, I teach in the Applied Intelligence Program at Georgetown, um, and it's a really it's a really great program, um, and I'm really grateful to be a part of it, but it's also a, a non-technical program, um, and for, for people who are more like me, who kind of fall into a, a skill set of like a program manager, uh, communication specialist, that sort of thing. Um, so, you know, I think as I've been talking to a lot of CISOs about the kinds of skills that they need, um, I, I keep getting a lot of feedback about um, I need people who have, uh, you know, really good engineering skills, really specific uh, threat hunter type of skills, um, really uh, just very good use of the different kinds of tools in the space, the splunks, um, and, 
you know, whichever other tools that you happen to be, I think Splunk is one that comes up all the time. Um, and, and that is really hard to cultivate in a university environment. So, I mean, one thing I've really been thinking about, um, and it also came up alongside this, this big university scandal where people were like, you know, just spending all of their money to bribe their way into these Ivy League schools is just how important, um, especially to this field, is a full university education anymore? Is there something else that we can start to do, like expand how we're thinking about training people to do these jobs? And I think that's something that I really want to explore in the future is um, what are those technical skills that, that are most sorely needed and how do we educate people? You know, it's, I think that it can be kind of a vocation. I think that a lot, there are a lot of people out there who could do some of these jobs and not even have to go through the whole university process. And then you have this very lucrative six-figure career um, that you can build on. I just, I don't see that a four-year master's level education is necessary for uh, some of the really critical jobs we need to fill. Yeah, I think you hit the nail right on the head. We're working on this and on our talks about on the, with the TF7 network, okay. how to solve this problem, right? This is a big, big problem. I think you just nailed it, man. I mean, getting the right education to the right people to get butts in seats, uh, to do the jobs that they need to do, and, and, and to automate this process as much as possible. And so um, not going to... Uh, not going to say too much more about that because you know we haven't come out with it yet. But I mean, we're we're having these discussions on a regular basis, and it's a huge problem. We hope to you know contribute to the solution. But uh, hey, we got to transition into commercial break. But hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family right away. Uh, for any inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email me directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with the number 7, radio.com. I want to remind our audience that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. I'm really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together, I promise you. Task Force 7 get in the fight. So we're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. And I want to talk a lot about about her new book in the next segment, so stick with it. It's going to be good, folks. Whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. 
As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Signet S-I-N-E-T. We're not your typical security vendor. In fact, the script for this ad was written by an engineer, not a marketing guru. Because at Sock Prime, we're focused on features that matter to our users. Our threat detection marketplace has over 30,000 cross-platform SIM and EDR rules. Our downloadable Sigma, Yara, and Snort detections can be deployed with just a few clicks. And our map to the MITRE ATT&CK framework, enabling quicker and more strategic detection. With support from Sock Prime's veteran team and our community of contributors, we bridge the blue team skills gap and cover emerging threats with daily releases of new content. Nearly three-quarters of the threat detection marketplace is free to download. Register for free at tdm.sockprime.com with promo code RADIO2019 to receive one free key to unlock premium content. That's tdm.socprime.com. Promo code RADIO2019. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fazzini. So, Kate, last episode, we didn't get really to talk too much about the book, and I want to dive into it a little bit deeper here because it's really interesting, and uh, I want people to hear about what you're writing. And you know, So, look, just tell us about your book in general. Sure. So, uh, the book is a four key people. Three of them are cyber criminals uh, from China, from Romania, uh, from Russia, and then there is one U.S.-based um, individual who's uh, a, a person who's a cybersecurity professional, um, going through a great deal professionally, going through a great deal um, of uh, stuff having to do with breaches, and we see how their lives intersect. Um, we see how they kind of go back and forth between good and bad, and then all of the many different kinds of characters that they um, uh, have in their lives who uh, are also are very influential. So. Um, just telling that story from the very ground level 
individual point of view. So this is interesting. I mean, why, why, why write the book now? How about the timing of the book? Is, it, is there anything special about the timing and release of the book or are you just, now's the time that you, you, know, you finished it and you had your thoughts together and you put it out? <laughs> well, that's a little bit of it. <laughs> There's a little bit of that with every book. Right. Uh, but uh, certainly, you know, we have a lot of problems that we need to solve uh, in cybersecurity today. We're just, we're not solving them. Um, you know, I, I, when I went to, it was, it was for many of the same reasons that I said earlier in this conversation about wanting to become a journalist, because I saw uh, that we sort of collectively um, kept, keep doing things the same way or thinking about things the same way. So, um, for instance, I see a lot of cybersecurity marketing and cybersecurity literature out there as just, it's like a blunt instrument. It's just hammering away at the exact same talking points year after year. You get this at Black Hat um, marketing material. It always looks the same, same problem, same solutions, maybe slightly repackaged. Um, so I, I wanted to try to take a different perspective and, and start having people think differently um, I think that one of the ways to do that, uh, there's, um, there's sort of a philosophical uh, thing <laughs> uh, that, that, that says, you know, if you take a very small piece of granite and you look at it under a microscope, it looks like a mountain. And that is one of the things that I took to this. I think if you take the microscope, rate on the individual people, the incidents, you know, what happens step by step, you might actually start to learn something different about the problem and maybe find a different way to approach it. Right. Well, the devil's in the details, I guess, in anything. And, and here, I think there's not enough root cause analysis done in this business. I don't think a lot of people think about it from a risk perspective and the RCA sometimes, sometimes really doesn't exist. How about, uh, how about pitches from cybersecurity companies? I mean, do you get those as a reporter? You must... Let's get some crazy ones. I mean, get some weird stuff out there. And that's, you know, it's funny because it, it is one of the things that uh, it ties back into everything I'm talking about, too, um, because, you know, one of the things that sort of leads the media narrative are, are the vendors, right? Um, they, they package up these pitches. They send them to reporters like me. Um, sometimes they sound really, really compelling, um, even if it's something that is not uh, if you, if you again, zoom in on it, it's not really that interesting, um, but you have like a, a kind of marketing team around it who can make it uh, seem a little bit more interesting than it is. Um, I, get, uh, I get probably 100 to 200 pitches a week. Um, wow, really? <laughs> something around there. Oh uh, my goodness. Pitches for stories. Um, you know, I mean, some of the crazier things, I, I think... I, I think some CISOs have probably experienced some of the same things that I get a little taste of, which um, are uh, sort of uh, the, the vendors who do things like, you know, discovering uh, vulner uh, discovering like open S3 buckets on, on uh, Amazon, AWS, stuff like that, uh, kind of pitching me these stories about things that they've found and um, wanting me, you know, it's, it's a really interesting line because I get pitches uh, from people who have, who have probably found something that might be damaging to a company, but have not alerted the company yet. They've called, they've called me first. And there's always this moment of what am I supposed to do here? <laughs> yeah. Um, and I think that's yeah. a good, that's, that's good self-reflection. I really do think it's good because it's important. You know, I do see um, some reporters out there doing more damage than good. 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, in these types of sensational cases, I mean, sometimes they do good for themselves, but not necessarily good for the industry or good for the victims or, mm-hmm. you know, or, and, and, and a lot of times, see, look, you, you know, this be hanging around, you know, uh, cybersecurity teams and corporate security. There's a lot of interaction with law enforcement. The release of information comes sometimes, you know, disrupts a case, which is you know, not good, not a good thing. You know, being a former federal agent and when, when some information gets out there before we want it to get out there, that changes bad guy behavior. When bad guy's behavior changes, that makes it more difficult for us to, you know, for, uh, to determine attribution or to even follow them if we, if we did uh, have attribution to monitor them. So uh, that, that whole intelligence gathering operation could be disrupted. So there's a lot of things to consider. And I think that's what you just said there comes from someone that used to be a practitioner that knows. I don't think there's a lot of self-reflection out there in the industry from other reporters. And hopefully you'll be able to, I think that it, it depends. I mean, um, you know, I, I think that the, the problem that I often have is that the thing that I'm being sold is not really a very interesting story. Um, if, if, for instance, somebody had brought me the Equifax uh, news before that had hit media, given what we know about their reaction to it and the fact that they weren't um, like, let's say in, in March of 2017, somebody said, hey, uh, you know, there's a ton of exfiltration happening at, at Equifax right now, and they're not doing anything about it. I would pursue that. Um, if, if, but when somebody brings me something saying, hey, I found an open bucket on this, this server, I'm the only person who's ever seen it. Um, it's a bunch of old information that is totally irrelevant. Um, but the company is a big company that is going to get a lot of headlines. I'm, I'm going to definitely pause and say, I, you know, just call them, just call the, the company. Right. <laughs> call right. the company and tell them about it. And if it's, you know, if they don't respond, then call me back. You know, um, you get 5,000 calls now, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <probably>. Next week. <laughs> <laughs> it's, well, Black Hat's coming up in August, so I think I'm already getting, uh, yeah, that's going to be. You mentioned marketing and, um, and I guess marketing's huge, a huge part of the cybersecurity companies out there who are not necessarily Fortune 500 institutions. Sometimes it is, but I, I, my, 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 in my experience, any Fortune 500 company does not want to market anything about their cybersecurity teams. So they don't want to. They don't want to be out there. They don't want anybody knowing they even exist. They want to go as low as pro, as possible. They want the lowest attack profile as possible. Um, but these other companies that offer the solutions. They're out there marketing, you know, like crazy. But what are some of the biggest mistakes cybersecurity companies make in terms of their marketing plans? And I think what I hear from from CISOs certainly is one of the biggest mistakes um, is trying to burn each other publicly. Um, I, I, I don't know. I'm not going to name any names, uh, but I think anybody listening who works in the industry and has seen um, some of the companies, you know, go head to head on their own personal blogs of, you know, I found such and such is leaking data and I was not leaking data and, and that kind of stuff. I think um, when, when companies see that these vendors are willing to go really public with the security stuff, it really spooks them. Um, and that's something that just keeps coming back. Like, I, I don't know that I can trust these guys. Are they like firing from the hip? Are they loose cannons? Um, I think that's a huge mistake, especially if you're trying to actually <laughs> sell your yeah, this is a, this, this, yeah, this is a big problem, right? I don't know who that is. I'd love to know who that is, is out there <laughs> throwing rocks at, you know, some other senior executives throwing rocks at another CISO about 
what happened on their on their turf. But uh, because I got to tell you, everyone's going to have a bad day. And one of my one of my good dear friends just said something to me the other day that stuck with me, and I just you know it just keeps coming up in my mind. That wheel is round, right? It's, <laughs> it's coming back around at you, okay? And so. I, I, everyone's going to have a bad day and to think that you're out there and you're running the, you know, the most pristine operation and nothing's happened to you is, is, uh, mm-hmm. is a fantasy. Right? I mean, especially if you're a vendor. Yeah. I, yeah. Think, I mean, come on. It's, it's, it's uh, cool. Your product is going to fail. Uh, it's going to fail somebody and it, it might even fail spectacularly. Um, and it might, that failure might be in the news and you know, that's the sort of thing that you have to be prepared to get around and one way to be totally unprepared to get around it is by running your mouth in a way that is, is going yeah. to uh, look really bad when it happens. Um, I think, uh, you know, another big mistake that, that marketers make um, is just overselling how technologically advanced the product is. Um, you know, you might fool um, a journalist uh, and you might, you might fool like a CFO um, chief financial officer, I, I mean, uh, I know there's other titles that fall under that, or, uh, you know, you might, you might fool even a CEO with, with how many bells and whistles you have, but once you get to the CISO or somebody with a lot of experience, um, they're going to know that what you're calling AI is not AI, and they're going to know, um, you know, that what you've done is, is repackage an existing product, and maybe you've done it in a really compelling way, but if you oversell how advanced your, your, your product is. Everybody's going to know about it. They're going to be talking about it. You won't know that they're talking about it, but yes, they will know. Um, yeah. I think that's a huge issue too. That, yeah, I mean, I do a lot of advisory stuff and I sat down and with, with, uh, uh, with some company executives last week and we were sitting down and I said, you do understand what you're calling artificial intelligence really is not artificial intelligence, right? And if you hold <laughs> out on it, it's going to be a little embarrassing. You have to you know, make sure that we you know, know what we're talking about from the beginning. And if you're going to, even if you're going to name something, you got to really identify this from the beginning. And I think people would appreciate the fact that, you know, the difference between, you know, uh, automation and an RPA and, and, uh, and uh, machine learning and artificial intelligence. And, you know, people just throwing out these words that it don't really, is not really existent in the, um, in the, in the, in the tool itself. So, Absolutely. And you also don't, um, I'm sorry, but the one thing I'm going to say there is that they are also saying, you know, this is artificial intelligence and you really need it without explaining, I think, sufficiently why a company needs artificial intelligence or machine learning. Um, You know, to say that it is a really uh, high-tech thing that you just have to have without saying, and here's why, I, I think that's a huge mistake because eventually somebody down that line when they're doing audits is going to look at that product and say, why do we need this? You know, maybe we have a, something that already exists or maybe we don't even need uh, this kind of capability in the first place. Maybe it's actually too much for us. Maybe we should have outsourced it to a third party, whatever. Um, I think that they have to make that actual business case and not just say like, obviously, obviously you need AI. Yeah, they do. And I think they need an even further discussion and talk about the, the new risk that these emerging technologies introduce into the environment that no one else is really talking about. And then people get burned during these implementations and they have egg on their face. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's a, I think it's a, the optics are end to end. And uh, I've been lucky enough to be around some uh, very, very talented executives that have given me insight into exactly how to approach these things. And 
and uh, I've, I've learned a lot from them on this. So I think this is definitely this is definitely a big problem that people need to you know, to address. So what are some of the uh, more crazier stories that uh, people tried to sell you? <laughs> I mean. I mean, do you have any good, like, really, really, like, off-the-wall stuff out there people calling you about? <laughs> um, I think there's been more than once that people have, have tried to um, indicate that there has been a breach at the company that I'm working at. Um, and I'm always very, like, it's it makes it very complicated. And I will usually, if it's something that needs to be handed off to... Uh, that actually needs to go to a reporter, I will just hand it off to another one because I'm like, I can't have people calling me as a practitioner to report something. And then also as a reporter with the idea that I might report on it and it's also the company that I work for. Um, so, you know, it's, that, those always, I would say that's not the craziest thing. Um, so. But okay. I guess there's, there's, there's other issues to <laughs> Conflicts of interest, I would say. Absolutely. Right? Yeah, you have to talk about something. It's so yeah. complicated. And, um, a little bit of a minefield there. <laughs> Very. Yeah, it's really and, – and, you know, there's there's so many different things. And I um, – so I, I try to do – I try to do the best ethical thing that I can in any of these situations. And You are talking about Black Hat before. And uh, you still think yeah. these cybersecurity conferences are valuable? Which ones are your favorites? Um, I – I think that, you know, there's a couple of them in New York. There's, um, I think it's CIIS that's up at Fordham this year in July that I'm really looking forward to. Um, it's very law enforcement heavy. Um, I haven't been to Black Hat in a couple of years. I'm actually going again this year. And, and the reason I haven't gone is, uh, you know, the, the thing that I want to know the most is I want to know what the CISOs are buying. Like, if I can't go there and talk to the buyers themselves, and maybe it's not the CISO, whoever does the relationship, whoever does the buying, I want, I, I would like to know, like, what they're buying, what the products are, um, they're most interested in, what they need today in 2019. Um, but what I get as a reporter when I go to some of the really big conferences is just, endless marketing. Right. <laughs> just, it's just, I mean, it's, it's so overwhelming. And I, I have yet to really find a lot of like things that are of, of interest. You know, what is definitely not of interest to me is the latest hacking demonstration. Um, that kind of stuff. It's, it makes for a catchy headline if they're going to hack a Jeep. I remember that, you know, it's, it's interesting uh, when these guys do some of that stuff on, on stage and some of the DEF CON stuff too, which is related. Um, but from a practical point of view, I really just want to go, I, I would really just like to find out what, what those are actually buying. And I usually get better information by actually talking to them any time of year than trying to chase them down at the conferences when you've been to these conferences. I mean, the people doing the buying at the at these conferences are so overwhelmed <laughs> that right. it's just impossible to get on the account. You can't navigate to the environment. There's too much. There's too much noise, and you you know it's too much. It's it's very very difficult to decipher which one of these tools and the differentiation between the tools and and the value they offer and, and to identify the redundancy and some of this stuff. I mean, it's just really you have to have a full time team working on it nonstop. I mean, you know, going out to a conferences and you know, it's gonna make some introductions, get some face to face time, but. You really have to have an innovation team, and a lot of, a lot of you know, very sophisticated companies do. The more complex companies do have innovation teams working 24-7 year-round or you know, working year-round full-time, I should say. 
But, um, you know, uh, it's, it, if you don't, then it just really comes convoluted. And it's just really difficult to decipher to go out there and have this process of distillation and abstraction of information from a, a conference, you know, uh, oh, that you, that's actionable, right? I mean, in that case, in, in, in your opinion, what is the purpose of executives going to these conferences today? I mean, what, what do I, I know a lot of people will say that they get a, a really good networking out of it. That just everybody goes and they get a chance to see all of their no, friends. it's face to face. No one goes inside the event that I know. Oh, really? No, they don't go inside the event. You know, they, they actually get hotel rooms and they just line up outside the event. And they do meetings nonstop all day. They rent these big, uh, you know, conference rooms in the hotels and they set up these meetings way ahead of time and they just go one after the other. Boom, boom, boom. Like, you know, these senior guys from these, the bigger companies, they don't go into the event at all. They just go to the city and set up everything outside of the event. I've got a lot of guys on this show say that too. Not a lot of guests on the show say, well, we don't even go inside the event anymore. I can't, the floor is just enormous. The floor is so big. Uh, you know, it's, 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 you get lost. It's like a maze and you know, you're just walking around and I don't know. It's just, there's so many people. I think, you know, the, the RSA conference, from what I understand, had set a record amount of people. I mean, it was tens of thousands of people. There. It was huge. Blow out, but uh, hey, we got to take another quick break to hear from our sponsors. But don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter Kate Fizzini. You're listening to Task Force Seven Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Account takeover is the fastest growing form of cyber attack. Criminals exploit compromised accounts for financial gain, often causing irreparable and long-term damage to finances and reputation. Many companies think they're protected. They believe using a password manager, multi-factor authentication, behavior-based technology, password rotations, or solutions that scan the deep and dark web is enough. Yet the account takeover problem only continues to get worse. SpyCloud combines human intelligence and automated technology to prevent account takeover for your customers and employees. We recover stolen credentials early in the account takeover lifecycle before the credentials are sold on dark forums. Check your exposure for free at spycloud.com. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Signet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem superconnector, Signet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Signet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure. Security-innovation.org or Google Sinet S-I-N-E-T. 
Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's Task Force 7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, CNBC cybersecurity reporter, Kate Fizzini. So, Kate, I can't let you go. I know we only have a few minutes left here to, uh, on the episode, but I can't let you go without asking you about women in cybersecurity. And recently, there have been some, um, I guess, polls or out there, some numbers, statistics that say that the, the women are now make up 23% of the, of the population in cybersecurity. And I think just months ago, it was 11%. So, we, we doubled. <laughs> We're so amazing. We doubled the amount of women in cybersecurity and only, a, you know, whatever it is, a few months. I don't even think it was a year, all right? So, I mean, I, I, don't, I don't know how that possibly can happen, but yeah. what's your thoughts that, on it? This is really interesting because I didn't even, I had not heard of this updated statistic until you told me uh, earlier. So, I, I haven't had a chance to examine the source material, um, but I think for many years, it had been at like 9 or 10% globally. Um, in the United States, it was slightly higher. Um, and I, I don't know. I mean, I think that, that, uh, I would certainly like to see what they're considering cybersecurity jobs, um, in those stats. Uh, but it's, it's also, you know, I have been out of the practitioner role for about three years now. And, and so who knows, maybe things have, have really changed dramatically. Um, you know, I, I think it's, it's, a really difficult, uh, it's, it's really difficult to change those demographics, but I do think it's very important, as, uh, I mean, especially because um, we have such a, a shortfall of people available. Um, we have to get more people into these roles and trained up into them, and that starts with um, making more people feel like they can be a part of this, um, you know, kind of cutting out some of the gatekeeping a little bit and at an earlier age, making sure girls think that this kind of job is actually very interesting and cool um, and not losing them as they go into college and go into different fields. Yeah, I mean, so that's the idea. I think you see a lot of effort out there right now to get younger folks interested in cybersecurity, especially, you know, females. I think the, the Girl Scouts are have some programs together. There's all kinds of ideas going on, which I think is fantastic. Because if you go to into a you know a, a computer science class at a major university, it, it looks like a fraternity in there. I mean, there's no there's really not a lot of women in there, uh, and that's representative of of the field itself, right? And so we're trying to change that at a younger age because we need that brain power because we don't have enough people, uh, and obviously to fill these to fill these seats, and we, we need young females to be interested. Uh, in, in, in this uh, industry to contribute to solving the problem uh, that we're having because it's very, very important, very important it's to our critical infrastructure, to our national security. 
So how do we do this? Is there any other ideas that you think that you come across and people may be working on to get younger folks, uh, especially females, interested in the field? Yeah, and I think that the Girl Scouts initiative was was really interesting. Um, I think that, you know, what you, you said, that the, the problem-solving skills that go into this job, um, I think even for somebody who uh, is interested in something a little bit more active, um, you know, I, I don't know what the stats are for law enforcement, but I do know that there are a great many women who um, are very interested in whether it's ROTC or these, these jobs that involve um, doing something for the greater good. Uh, this is, you know, I, I don't, I'm not trying to typecast, but I see this happening time and again, whether it's going into fields that are often dominated by women like social work or something like that there is this, this tendency to say, like, I really want to do something that's, that's, that's good for the country, that's good for people. Um, and there are so many elements of cybersecurity that fall into that. I think a lot of people um, coming from the military, especially, are a good example of that, who transition so well, because even if they're going into a private sector job, they still have that desire to um, be a part of something that is protecting the country and protecting people. So if you're at a financial firm, um, you know, you're, you're protecting their, their finances, even if you're in insurance or healthcare. It's, it's a very um, interesting role, and I think presenting it that way uh, is really important. Um, I do know that because of the government shutdown this year, uh, many of the government agencies missed the really critical recruiting period that was happening during that time. So I think making sure we don't miss anything more uh, along those lines is is really important too. Um, we just have to kind of keep rolling and getting people interested in these jobs. Right. So you 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 teach in major universities. Um, you have a lot of experience doing that in, in more than one university. What are, what are colleges doing right in cybersecurity, and what are they doing wrong, in your opinion? I think, um, you know, I, I think that the really flexible degrees are, are the right way to go. And my experience, um, when I was teaching at UMUC at the University of Maryland, so many of the students were, were coming from um, military backgrounds, government service backgrounds already, and just super dedicated people really wanting to improve themselves, really wanting to, you know, get into a field that they knew was going to be growing. Um, I, I really felt like, uh, you know, these aren't, these aren't the people who are full-time on-campus people. It's the same thing at Georgetown. But they are the people who went out, maybe did a couple of years either in the military or it, working in a company and said to themselves, actually, you know, I want to focus on this. Um, I think that offering a really diverse uh, selection of whether it augments what you already have as a degree or trains you up into a bachelor's or a master's degree, I think those are really, really important because the people you're attracting are people that really want to do this stuff. Um, and, you know, it's, they're going to also get, get those degrees a lot quicker and get into the workforce quicker. So one last question, and I can't resist this because, you know, obviously, you know, I was a, a former federal agent with the Secret Service and they did a lot of investigations with the cyber criminals. And you do a lot of stories on the prosecutions of cyber criminals. You wrote about it in your book. Do you think we're doing the right thing in terms of how we're approaching these prosecutions? Are we prioritizing our resource properly? We're going after the right people. 
right? And, and, and do we have the right relationships to go after the right people to get that global reach, to reach out and touch someone, the people that we, that we need to, right? <laughs> I you know as a federal agent, you always wanted to reach out and touch some cyber criminals. But, <laughs> um, so, uh, but I think, um, I, I mean, it's, it's so difficult to get to the, the prosecutorial stage of, of, of people anyway. Um, but, and, and this is with, with kind of a, a yellow light that I'm not saying that we should do business with, with cyber criminals, but um, many of our adversaries do. Many of our adversaries, especially Russia and, and in Eastern Europe as well, um, you know, see somebody who is a really, really strong hacker, very good cyber criminal, and will recruit them in a government service, sometimes using their crimes as a reason to say, well, we'll just look the other way um, if you do X, Y, and Z. Um, that's not really the American way, right? If somebody commits a computer crime, they will be arrested. They will probably be prosecuted. Um, depending on the severity of it, uh, they might go to jail. Um, we really rarely take those people and try to like learn anything from them. Um, I think that we might be able to do a little bit of a better job of that. Um, I, I, I'm not advocating, again, for some kind of partnership, but I think especially when it comes to um, younger people who get involved in some level of cybercrime, there is an opportunity, and it's something I, I talk about in my book a great deal because many of the former cyber criminals I interview are working legitimate jobs um, now. Uh, I think that it's really critical and, and can actually be a benefit if you can turn those people around and turn their skills around into something that we can use. Yeah, I mean, look, everybody knows Albert Gonzalez. Everybody knows that what he did in Operation Firewall. You know, he was a, an informant uh, for the United States government, and, um, and, he, and he committed crimes, and he received the longest sentence at the time. I think it was the, the longest sentence of any cyber criminal ever in the history of the United States. So there's not a big tolerance for it. If you get the opportunity to, to do that, to turn your life around, it's there, you have to seize it, but you gotta walk the straight line. And if you don't, no one's gonna feel sorry for you. And uh, that didn't end up too well for him. I mean, he had an opportunity of a lifetime to turn his life around. Um, that was a, one of the largest investigations in, in the United States history in, in terms of this, you know, investigating cyber crime and cyber organized uh, groups. Mm -hmm. organized crime groups. Um, so uh, that's a kind of a perfect example, I think, of what you're talking about. And I think, uh, you know, people are saying, oh, well, it was a Secret Service informant that went bad. Look what happened. And, you know, the secret. No, these are criminals. Criminals commit crimes, right? right. What's the difference between, you know, I worked, I worked you know, as, a, as a police officer for a long time. I've seen this a million times. It's not shocking to me. But maybe to the general public, they don't understand because it was a Secret Service informant that maybe you know, things are different. But anyway. I think, um, I, I think in, the, in the cybersecurity world, too, there are definitely, um, you know, some of the people who I, I interviewed or I talked with others about them were clearly, like, sociopaths who would, if they weren't committing cybercrimes, just committed other types of crimes. I think a lot of people fall into that bucket where it's just like, well, this is the crime I happen to figure out how to commit. And if I wasn't committing it, I would be murdering people or something like that, you know. There, <laughs> that, that's one category. But I think there are also young people who just, in, in an effort to be mischievous, I know law enforcement people hate this this angle on it but you know I think that it is worth trying to capture those people when they're young and before they do something too stupid and turning them around I think that might be uh, something worth looking into. No, I think that's definitely more the conversation and how to go about that I mean 
look, you know, getting insight and any insight to that world that can help, you know, the greater good. And that's some of, that's the way it's phrased uh, you know, in terms of what is the greater good here. Right. But uh, I think it's worth the time. But Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show again. I love it when you come on. It's great. Right. Anyway, I have such a good time. Thanks, Appreciate George. I love being here too. Take care. All right. Great. So look, before we go, folks, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Check it out, folks. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. 